for the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Is the theme of the passage that we want to look at this morning. Will you turn with me, please, to the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 12, and uh, the first two verses of that chapter. We've come now to the section of Romans that uh, is normally called the practical portion of the book. I have never liked that particular designation because it infers that uh, Paul is impractical in the first 11 chapters. Uh, and, of course, that's not true. Paul is eminently practical, though he delves into the deep things of God. He never goes so far that he loses track of where he's going or the point of it all. But what Paul does, and does so well in his books, is take the knowledge of God and make it tenable and doable and understandable and very, very practical in the closing chapters of all of all of his books. He puts the theological cookies on the bottom shelf, and that's what he's doing from chapter 12 through chapter 16. Let's begin reading with uh, verse 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In my mind, the conjunction with which this chapter begins is probably the most important connector in the Bible. Because what Paul is doing is telling us why we ought to be Christian. Now, let me explain. From time to time, you've probably said to someone else, don't preach to me, or don't give me a sermon. Now, what we mean uh, is that someone, should, uh, someone has been telling us what we ought to do. They've been shooting on us. Now, when we use sermon and and preaching in that way, we're thinking of it in in a pejorative sense, a depreciative sense. Because we, that kind of preaching is somewhat redundant. We don't need someone to tell us what to do. We don't need to know what. What we need to know is why. Why should we behave? Why should we be the kind of people that, that God has called us to do? We need a reason. We need a motivation for good behavior. Otherwise, we just feel lashed. So often you go to church and and you you get hit with the truth and you walk away feeling guilty and and under the pile and it doesn't do any good. It doesn't really change us. You've probably heard of Robert's Rule of Pig Pedagogy. (laughs) Robert's Rule of Pig Pedagogy is never teach a pig to sing. In the first place, it doesn't work, and in the second place, it only annoys the pig. (laughs) And that's the trouble with that kind of preaching. We come away bothered and confused and feeling guilty, and it doesn't do any good. It doesn't change us. It only annoys us. Now, what Paul is doing in chapter 12 is giving us a reason for righteous behavior. 
I urge you, brothers, he says, in view of God's mercy. I love the way the Jerusalem Bible puts it. That's why I had Judy put it on the front of of your bulletin. I think of God's mercies, my brothers, and worship him in a way that's that's worthy by offering him your, your living bodies. God's love is the reason that we do what we do. If you want a reason for being righteous, that's it. It's because God loves us. Now, it is true, as Paul puts it in another of his writings, that uh, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. There is a sense in which uh, our accountability before God matters. But, but the motive that really appeals to me, the one that works in my life, is just realizing that, that God loves me more than I could ever imagine. He loves me just the way I am. You see, what Paul has done in the opening chapters of the book is described for us in a very graphic way what that love entails. God saw us as lost and lonely and, and desperate in our longing, and, and he became one of us. He died for us in order to bring us to God so we can fellowship with him. You see, it's a story of God's love, and that's so enormously motivating to know that God really loves us. I've been reading uh, one of George MacDonald's books, books lately called The Minister's Restoration. It's written back in the 1700s, but it's a remarkably uh, contemporary book because he's dealing with uh, sin in the life of public uh, figures. It was true then in the 18th century, just as it is is today here in the United States in the 20th century. And uh, he tells the story of of an old cobbler, McLean, McClare is his name, and his young daughter Maggie, and a young minister, uh, who fathered a child out of wedlock and then tried to cover up the thing. And at one point in the story, Maggie, uh, McClear's daughter, is uh, wandering through the woods one night, and she comes upon a very small child under a tree, about a year old, and the child was weeping and, and obviously lost. And uh, she picks up the child, and uh, her first thought, as she puts it, is to take it home to her father. With the instinct of a mother, she caught it up and clasped it close to her chest. She was delighted to find its crying cease the moment it felt her arms about it. Andrew, who was the young man who was accompanying her that evening, had dropped the things he had been carrying and had started after her, and now met her halfway back to the road, so absorbed in her newfound treasure that she scarcely noticed him. He turned and followed, but to his amazement. The moment she reached the road, she turned back down the hill the way they had come. Clearly, she could think of nothing but carrying the infant home to her father. And here, even the slow perception of her companion understood her actions. Maggie, he said, you'll both be dead afore you get home. Come on to my mither. There never was a woman like her for bairns. She'll kin better than any father what to do with it. Maggie at once recovered her senses and knew he was right, but not before she received an insight that was never afterward to leave her. Now she understood the heart of the Father and the heart of the Son of Man who came to find and carry back the stray children to their father and to his. When afterward she told her father what she had then felt, he answered her with just four words and no more. Lassie, you have it. Lassie, you have it. That's the gospel. And when you understand that, you have it. That God came to seek and to save those that are lost. He loves us. And as the songwriter puts it, 
love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When we understand how much God loves us, we want to give him our bodies. That's Paul's point. A number of years ago, uh, well, actually, I, 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 when I was down in California, I was reminded of something that had happened years ago. I'd almost forgotten all about it. When I was working with students, and there was a, a, a man who was the principal of Menlo Atherton High School who had been led to Christ by a number of students in that, on that campus, that high school campus. And he was deeply concerned about the kids under his care. And he called me one day and asked me if I would drop by and see a young student who was on his way to prison. His name was Jim Borrell. And I've forgotten now what his crime was, but uh, he, was, he had been convicted and he was uh, going to be sent to jail. As it turned out, he ended up in the Marines. He opted for the Marines rather than jail, so the story wasn't quite as bad as it seemed on the front end. But on the other hand, maybe it was. I don't know. But... <laughs> Uh, he asked me if I would come talk to this young man because he'd been in his office talking to him and, uh, and he felt that he had an interest in spiritual things. And Don was just a new sort of a baby Christian and he didn't know how to tell him how to meet the Lord. So I took a, a student friend of mine and, and we went to Jim Bohr's house. He lived alone in a house in Atherton, California, which, which is the moneyed part of, of the peninsula. And uh, here between two estates was this old ratty house, tumble-down house, weed-ridden uh, yard. And, and uh, on the front porch were a couple of choppers. And I wondered, what in the world am I getting myself into? And, and we went in the house, and here was this very tall young man. He was about six, seven. He had long hair, uh, clear down his back. He had on bell-bottom jeans and no shirt. And uh, he greeted me in the door and introduced himself as Jim Bora. And we went into the room and began to chat. And uh, after a while, I noticed that we weren't alone. There were students sitting around the room. They were, they were back in the dark corners and sitting in sofas and chairs, and they had all the curtains drawn, and they had tapestries on the wall, and it was very dark and gloomy in there and a lot of smoke in the room. And, and uh, I, I, at first, I didn't notice anyone there, but then I realized there were a number of people in the room with us. It gave me kind of a creepy feeling because they weren't saying anything, but, but Jim was obviously interested in the gospel, and it was the first time he had ever understood the fact that God loved him. He'd been in trouble all of his life. He'd been kicked out of school several times. And uh, all he saw ahead was prison. And we talked about God's love for him and the fact that God became man and died on the cross for him. And after a bit, I said, Jim, does this make any sense to you? And he said, oh, yes, yes, it does. And I said, well, is there any reason why you couldn't make Christ your Savior and Lord? Ask him in, in your, into your heart. And he looked around the room and he said, you, you mean in front of all these people? And I'd never done this before. I don't think I've ever done it since. But somehow it just seemed appropriate. And I said, yeah, I think so, Jim. I, I, right now, right here in front of these people, would you pray with me and ask Christ into your life? And he looked down at the floor for a moment. And then he looked up. And he said something that I don't think I'll ever forget. He said, all right, if Christ died up there on that cross in front of all of those people for me, then it's not too much for me to ask him into my life in front of my friends. Now, that's what Paul is talking about. See, that sort of motivation is what drives us. If God loved us like that, it's not too much for me to give him my body. Now, uh, the question is, why a body? 
Well, it's because God loves your body. God likes it. God likes human bodies. The incarnation makes that abundantly clear. He, he chose to come in a human body. He didn't come as an angel. He didn't come as a, a disembodied spirit. He came in a human body. He loves bodies. He wants to indwell your body. Now, that's a, an almost uniquely Christian idea. You're, you're not going to find that idea in most other religions, and you certainly wouldn't have found it in the religions of Paul's day because, as you know, the, the Roman world was deeply affected by Greek philosophy, and the idea in Greek philosophy was the body was bad. It was a prison for the soul. There's nothing good in it. It was up to no good. So you either had to discipline it very severely, which the Stoics did, or you just trashed it. It didn't make any difference what you did with your body because bodies didn't matter. What mattered was the soul and the realm of pure ideas, the spiritual world, but not the world of the body. But Paul, you've probably noticed that as we've read through, through Romans, he keeps talking about making your body available, presenting your body to him, presenting the members of your body, your hands, your mouth, your ears, your eyes. Your sexual organs, every part of your body is to be presented to God for his, for his use. That's, that's, that's Paul's presentation of the gospel. Remember he says in, in chapter 10 that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God has raised from the dead, we'll be saved. Now he's saying put your body where your mouth is. See? Make your body available to him. Present it to him for his use. Uh, there used to be a moving service in, in Palo Alto, California that had the, uh, trucks that ran all over town. And the sign, their, their logo on the, on the side of the truck, their slogan was, Any load, any distance, any place, any time. Now that's what we say to the Lord. Here's my body. Any load, any distance, any place, any time. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. We present our bodies to him. That's the offering that we make. When the offering plate comes by, as David said, hop in. That's the most reasonable offering that, that, uh, that you can present. Uh, again, you may say, why, why would he want my body? Somebody else's body, yes, but my body, no, no. It's ugly. I mean, just look at it. It's ugly. Why, why would he want my body? It's too fat, or it's too thin, too much adipose, too much cellulose, what, whatever. You know. uh, it has a dirty mind. Uh, it's the seat of everything that's wrong with me. Uh, I have Dunlap's disease. You, you know what Dunlap's is. That's when your tummy doesn't lap over your belt. <clears throat> you can tell I'm on, on the level because the bubble's in the middle. You know, it, it's a... Uh, who, who, who would want my body? It's been ravished by drugs and by booze and by too much partying. I have a sexually transmitted disease that I contracted in the past. Who, why does God want my body? You see, that's the genius of, of, of the Christian life. God wants us to present our body just like it is. He doesn't want us to tone it up and tan it up and, and gussy it up and make it any better. He just wants us to, to give, him, give him our body. And let him do something with it. Because we don't know what to do with it. If we try to take care of our own bodies, we'll always put it to the wrong use. We'll misuse it. And even if we, we think we're doing what's right, we'll end up unsatisfied and disenchanted. No, 
Paul says, just, just give him our bodies and he'll fill them and he'll flood them and he'll put them to his intended use. I've told you before, I think, the story of my good friend Brian Morgan, who's been up here a number of times uh, to speak to us, to our college group and, and to the men's group. Remarkable young man. When he was in high school, he was touted as, a, as an Olympic hopeful. He was a very fine gymnast. And uh, uh, a number of colleges uh, wanted to offer him scholarships. He ended up going to Stanford University. And, and uh, his first year while he was there as a freshman, he, he did extremely well. And then every year after that, he did worse. He was one of these young men who, who uh, developed very quickly, and he was as good in high school as he'd ever be, and then he had trouble keeping his weight down. And, and he just did terrible, uh, terribly. His uh, uh, sophomore and junior years, he fell off the high bar at an NCAA meet, embarrassed himself and all of his teammates. And, and uh, I remember one day he came around to my office, and he said, You know, uh, I have always misread what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. I thought that Paul said, glorify God with your body, and I thought what, what God wanted was for me to excel as an athlete. And then when I stood in the, on, the, on the Olympic uh, the little pyramid and received my gold medal, I would say I owe it all to Jesus Christ. He said, but I misread that, that uh, verse. It doesn't say glorify God with your body. He says, it says glorify God in your body. See, what matters is the is the character which our Lord displays through our bodies. He wants to take that body of yours, you know, as, as lumpy and out of shape as it is, and he wants to fill it and flood it with his presence and manif- manifest through it the character of Christ. And it, it all begins, you see, with the, a presentation of our bodies. Um, um, friend of mine from years past put it this way, Christianity is not a way of doing special things. It's a special way of doing everything. Jesus, for example, did the most ordinary things, but he did them in a special way. Can I talk to a woman the way he did? Can I ask for a drink of water or cook fish or stroll through my hometown or talk to my men as he did? The dusty pedestrian duties of life demand God Almighty and me. I need to know how to do things his way. It takes as much of his wisdom for me to go to my office and sit at my desk and talk on the phone as I should, as much of his power to go through my daily routine as it does for me to preach a sermon or write a book, a religious book. An evening with my wife, a golf tournament with my son, an ice cream adventure with my daughter, a conference on financial budgets all need to be done his way. I'm not supposed to be a gilt-edged spook with wings making a holy hum half-human and half-angel floating six inches off the ground. I'm supposed to be a normal, natural, down-to-earth man manifesting God's practical spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, dressed up in Levi's or a business suit. Yeah, that's what God wants from us, just us ordinary people. He wants our bodies so we can fill them and flood them and manifest his character through, them, through us. So wherever we go, we will do things in, in a special way, his way. Um, the, the most significant word, I think, in this uh, first paragraph is this notion of presenting or offering. The NIV says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Other translations say present, make a presentation 
of your bodies as a living sacrifice. The verb is uh, it's in a tense that suggests uh, uh, a once-for-all action, something that we do at some point in our life that governs the rest of our life. Uh, my, my, I, used to, I used to put in fences with my father, and he would, wherever the corner post was going to be, he'd drive a peg down, and, and everything else was measured from that one, one point, that parameter. And he often used that as an expression, he'd say, whenever he would talk about this passage, you need to drive a peg down. And I knew what he meant. At some point in our life, we have to, we have to drive a peg down. We have to decide that if, from this point on, God is going to use my body. Here it is. Here's my body. Just use it as, as you see fit. I became a Christian when I was a small child. I still remember my mother praying with me and uh, writing in the margin of my Bible. And I think that's when I received Christ. But uh, I just went along for years and years. And it really wasn't until I was a junior in, in college that I, I drove that peg down. And I, I still remember, I was, it was one of the most graphic experiences of my life. A lot of things have happened. My Christian life has been up and down, and I've had a lot of failures and, and uh, a few successes, and it's one of these things. But that stands out in my mind as the most significant thing that's happened to me other than my actual conversion because I was sitting up in the stands of the Cotton Bowl in Dallas. I've even forgotten why I was there, and there were only two or three of us in the whole Cotton Bowl. And I was sitting next to a young navigator. The navigators are an organization that originally worked with servicemen, then began to work with college students. And this man had been studying with me and studying the Bible with me and encouraging me to memorize scripture. His name is Gordon Donaldson. And he just asked me if I'd be willing to present my body as a living sacrifice. And I remember praying and just asking the Lord to take my body. I, I didn't hear uh, angels sing or a chimes or anything else. It was just a presentation of my life. And I failed many times since then. I failed to act on that basis. But I can't get away from the fact that I'm His. And I guess the question I would ask is, have you ever done that? Have you ever just said, okay, God, here is my body. To be used as you see fit. I'll go anywhere you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll make whatever decisions you want me to make. Here are my members presented to you to do with as you see fit. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. He says some interesting things about that presentation. It's a sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God. That's an interesting idea. Those two words come out of the Old Testament. And uh, they refer to the sacrifices that uh, were installed through the law, which were holy in the sense that they were set apart for God. Certain animals were taken off to the side and prepared for sacrifice. They were said to be holy and sanctified. And when they were offered, it's said that God smelled that offering. It, that, that's an anthropomorphism. God doesn't smell in the, in the sense that we do, but, but he smelled the offering and it was pleasing to him is the idea. And Paul says, when we offer our bodies, when you hop in the offering plate as it goes by, or in the quiet of your own room, you say, okay, God, here's my body. Oh, that's so pleasing to God. It's what he loves to hear. It smells so good in his nostrils. Paul says, that's holy. That's pleasing. And furthermore, it's the most reasonable worship that you can carry out. 
The word that's translated spiritual worship here is actually the word from which we get our word logical. And you see, I don't know exactly what Paul is saying here. He's either saying that uh, this is the logical thing to do with your body, or he is saying the word sometimes was used in this sense. This word had a long and very complex history. It did have the idea of, of the realm of spiritual things, the realm of thought, uh, in contrast to the material world. And so he could be saying, that, you know, it's a spiritual worship. doesn't really matter. The point is, this is worship. The most worshipful thing you can do is to let him have your body. don't have to come down here to a church building to worship. You can worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days out of the year. You worship by responding to God's revelation. He loves you. And he wants to put your body to his intended purpose. So just... Give it to him. You'll trash it. So will I. If we try to take care of it ourselves. But if we give it to him, he'll put it to his intended purpose. Now the second uh, significant term here is transformation. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual or logical worship. And then negatively, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Negatively, don't, don't be conformed to the world. Uh, which brings to mind the question, what does Paul mean by the world? What is the world? Is it the world of people? No. It's the world of ideas and attitudes. We need to understand what, uh, what worldliness is because if we don't watch out, worldliness can uh, squeeze us into its mold. It's, that's the way J.B. Phillips translates this verse. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. We can, can be conformed to the thinking of the world. Uh, a friend of mine told me recently he went to a particular group and, of Christians and he was uh, he joined this group and he was given a a book, a real thick book, which, uh, which supplied all the rules and regulations that governed that particular body of, of believers. And it started out, uh, don't, can't go to movies, can't dance, can't drink, can't chew tobacco. And, and he, you know, I, I, it recalled in my own mind uh, a lot of the rules and regulations that uh, were applied to me as a Christian. And I couldn't help but think when I heard those, uh, those rules, all right, okay, I, I won't do those things, but I, I reserve the right to be resentful and bitter and unforgiving and, and unloving and, and to gossip about people. I, I'm not saying that smoking is good. It's not. It's, it's, hard. it's bad for your body. I don't smoke. I, you know, I'm probably not going to live long enough anyway. And I, I don't want to cut my life any shorter than, than it is that. I, 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 I want to stay healthy. And, and there are certain movies I don't go to. And there are certain television programs that I don't watch. Uh, there, there are all kinds of reasons, I think, for doing or not doing these things. But what we have to understand is that worldliness runs a lot deeper than the, the list of, of rules that we're normally given. Uh, our Lord puts it like this. He, he describes uh, the things that come out of our heart, evil thoughts, and sexual immorality, and 
and theft, you know, cheating on the IRS, and, uh, padding your expense account, murder, adultery, greed, malice, that is active evil, the desire to, to harm people, deceit, uh, lewdness, envy, jealousy, gossip, slander, arrogance, Folly, which is an interesting uh, term, it just means recklessness, just a tendency to shoot from the hip and say and do things that, uh, that aren't thoughtful. And our Lord identified those characteristics as just as worldly as any other list of, of do's and don'ts that we might, uh, might envision. Now, we have to understand what the world is. It's basically an attitude of indifference to God that I can go on doing what I, what I please without reference to God. I am what I am apart from God. That's, that's worldliness. And Paul says, don't, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. This idea that, that something I buy, something I wear, something I roll on or spray on is going to make me happy, that's worldliness. See? And Paul says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed. Wonderful word. It's the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. You know what happens to a butterfly? It, you know, it starts out as a bug, an ugly worm, and it spins a cocoon around itself, and then pretty soon this, that, that thing breaks, and out comes this beautiful butterfly, and there's some mysterious unknown process going on that transfers, transforms a worm into a butterfly. We call that metamorphosis, a change in form. And that's the word that Paul uses here. He takes us as we are, and he begins to transform us. He changes us. Now, we need to understand what he changes us into. To listen to some Christians, he changes us into people who tithe 10% of their income. They go to church every time the doors are open. They switch their uh, political affiliation from the Democrats to the Republican Party. You know, we have all... So ideas of what happens, and they're all external. I'm a Republican. No, you don't understand. But, you know, it, <laughs> that, that's, that's, not what, that's not what changes us, see? That's not the kind of change that, that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a change in character. He's talking about conformity to Jesus Christ becoming like our Lord, who was the manliest man you could ever envision perfect human being, knew how to handle every situation, could walk into the most awkward circumstances and handle it well. He knew when to be hard. He knew when to be soft. Uh, he could be patient with people that are weak and, and were struggling. He could be hard on hypocrites. And he just knew how to handle every circumstance. In public life, as in private life, he was always the same. Jack Packer describes a gentleman as someone who uses a butter knife when he's all alone, and uh, it bears some thought. You know, I don't even use a butter knife in public. We ought to use one in private. That, that's his point. See, what we are is what we are in all situations. That's the way our Lord was. And what God wants to do is make us more and more and more like our Lord. See, that kind of gracious, kindly, merciful, strong, courageous individual. We're being conformed little by little to his, uh, to his character. The uh, verb tense is present. The emphasis is on an on ongoing, gradual process. It's not uh, like flipping a switch. 
we are not today walking in the flesh and in tomorrow perfectly sanctified. It's a slow, ongoing process. Time and delay are always part of the process. There will be failures along the way, sometimes big failures. But the point is there's progress. We're making progress. And we can look back on our lives and say, yes, I'm a little bit more like the Lord Jesus than I was two or three years ago. A little bit of change. I should point out that the verb is also passive, not active. When a verb is active, it means that the subject does the acting. When a verb is in the passive mood, it means that the subject is acted upon. And this is, this is passive in mood. He's saying, be being transformed. This is the secret of change in the Christian life. It's not that we grit our teeth and grab ourselves by the bootstraps and decide we're going to change. It's the Lord who changes us. Little by little, we're being conformed to his character as he works his magic upon us. As we read the word, the Spirit of God takes the word and and begins to make it real in our life. As we rub shoulders with other Christians... Their, their likeness to Christ begins to rub off on us. As we memorize Scripture, the Word begins to penetrate our hearts. and We begin to believe it and live it. As we listen to praise tapes and other good music, the truth of God begins to seep and creep into all the nooks and crannies of our lives, and we begin to reflect more and more of, of the likeness of our Lord. There, there are simply no rules or regulations that can do that. You just can't do it. As Paul puts it in another place, the flesh that is self-effort profits nothing, absolutely nothing. We don't change by self-effort. Uh, the, in the men's Bible study last Wednesday, we were talking about the problem that Jesus encountered repeatedly with, with the Pharisees who tried to lay the law on people. They, they saw his disciples eating without washing their hands. As I told the men, it reminds me of my kids. They were always eating without washing their hands. But the problem was not hygiene. It was, it was ritual. They had a special way of washing your hands. And if you didn't wash your hands the right way, then, then you, you were defiled. And Jesus just took their heads off, which is so, you know, so unexpected. He said, you're a bunch of hypocrites, he said. Because outwardly you're, you're talking about uh, righteousness and cleanliness, but your hearts are defiled. And his point is that nothing you can do externally, no washing your hands is going to cleanse the heart. The problem is the heart. And you can't do anything about your heart. It's an inside job. God has to change your heart. He has to get in there and begin to make those changes. And no amount of, of setting your jaw and, and writing resolutions and deciding you're going to change will change you. It won't change you. The only change agent in the world is our Lord Jesus. And when we present our bodies to him and we make that decision to be being, uh, to, to permit him to, to transform us into his character, then he begins to go to work to do it. And there's some process that I can't explain. It just begins to happen. It's like hanging out with someone who has a very strong personality. After a while, you begin to gesture like they do, and you begin to talk like they do. When you walk with the Lord, that's what happens. You begin to act like Him. You find yourself responding to situations the way, the way He did, and sometimes it's, it's almost an unconscious process. It's just happening. 
because you've made yourself available. There's an oak tree right across the fence in our backyard, big white oak, and all winter it's had leaves on it, dead brown leaves. You can hear them rustling when the wind would blow. One day I looked out there and they're all gone. They were lying under the tree, and I, I went out and looked at the tree, and I saw why, little, little green leaves being to poke out through the stem, the place where the stem on the old leaf was. And I thought it's a good illustration of how we grow the new life which God implants in us through the person of Christ begins to grow and emerge, and, and that life forces off the old, and, and we begin to, to display his beauty. It's so simple. So simple, and yet so hard. It's so hard for us to get around to doing it because we just don't want to give up our own will. But when we come to God and we say, okay, here's my old body. I'm, I'm through messing around with it. I'm through trying to control it and discipline and, and, and get it in, in, in shape spiritually. And I just, You just take it. You've got to have it. You, you made me in the first place. You understand how my body works, so you take it and do with it as you see, uh, see fit, and then you, you, you just let the Word and let the Spirit of God begins to begin to transform you from the inside out. And what happens, Paul says, is that you begin to discover you know, not only what God's will is, but you know that it's good and pleasing and perfect. Then, he says, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and, and perfect will. When I read that, I thought of a Whitman sampler I love to test and approve. Whitman samplers, I go through the box and I grab one and I bite into it. It's one of those yucky things with cherries on the inside. I put it back, you know, if nobody's looking. But if it's nougat, I, I, I approve it. I love nougat. And, and, and that's what Paul is saying. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Not burdensome to walk with the Lord. Sure, there are tough times. Sometimes you have to love people that are unlovely. Sometimes you have to do things that, that are difficult. But when you, when you understand the Christian life this way, when you understand that it isn't a legalistic performance, it isn't a bunch of rules and regulations, it's a matter of presenting your body to, to God as His instrument and your members as His to use as He sees fit. And then you permit Him, because He's in your body, to begin to transform you. You begin to test and approve God's will. You like it. It's like biting into a, to a nougat. It, it's good. It, it's, it's pleasing. It's perfect, you see. It's so simple. It's so simple. Just present your bodies and let him begin to conform you to his image. Carolyn passed on to me the cutest cartoon last week. And some of you may have seen it. It's a Peanuts cartoon. I think it was Penny, is that her name? I forgot to ask what her name was. She was standing with Linus at the uh, bus station. And uh, the bus was coming. And she said, is that the school bus or the regular bus? And Linus says, that's the regular bus. And Penny says, I think I'll get on the bus and go to another state and run off into the woods and live on berries. And Linus says, having trouble with fractions again, huh? And I thought about the Christian life, you know. Oh, my, we struggle, and we, it's such a strain, and we have such a hard time. And sometimes I just want to run off into the woods and eat berries. <laughs> it's because I'm having trouble, see, with, with the Christian life. 
But Paul simplifies the whole thing for us. He just, he just wants us to present our bodies, a living sacrifice to God, and permit the Spirit of God to begin to transform us from within. Can I, can I, I, I hate to keep inflicting George MacDonald on you, but as everyone knows, he's one of my favorite authors. And I want to read a, a section from uh, MacDonald. Um, the, and with this, I'm done. The old uh, cobbler had an ongoing uh, verbal battle with the local uh, minister who was very legalistic and who, ten- who tended to emphasize the judgment of God. And one day, McClare was in his shop. He's working on some shoes, and the minister showed up. It's a grand day, said the minister. It seems to me that on just such a day will the Lord come, nobody expecting him, and the folk all following their various callings, just as when the flood came and and wiped them all away. And I was thinking this very minute, returned the cobbler, that it would be a bonny day for the Lord to go aboot his own people. I was thinking that maybe he was walking with my Maggie, that was his daughter, walking with my Maggie up the hill to Stone Cross, closer to her maybe than she could see or think. Ah, McClare, returned the minister, you're a good deal taken up with vain imaginings. What scripture do you have for such a notion that has no practical value? Indeed, sir, what scripture have I for taking my breakfast this morning? Yet I never look for a judgment to fall upon me for eating it. I think we do more things in faith than we can, yet still not enough. I was thankful for what I ate, though. I I know not, and maybe... I skipped a line. I was thankful for what I ate, though. I know that, and maybe that'll stand for faith. But if I go on this way, we'll be beginning as we left off last night. It had this huge theological argument the night before. If I go on this way, we'll be beginning as, as we left off last night, and we have to love one another, not according to what the one thinks, but according as he kins the master loves the other. For he loves the two of us together. But how do you know he's pleased with you? I said, nothing about that. I said, he loves us. For that, he must be pleased with you. I didn't think about that. I just take my life in my hand and I give it to him. And he's never turned his face from me yet. Let's pray. Father, what would we do? If we presented ourselves to you and you turned your face away from us, where else would we go? We have no one else to whom we can turn. This morning, Lord, we want to give you our bodies just as they are. With all of our sinfulness, with all of our weakness, with all of our bad memories, our guilt, our failure all of our disappointments, all of our hopes and dreams, everything that we are and we have, we give to you, knowing that you love us and that you'll never turn your face away from us. We ask that by your Spirit you would continue to use your word to change your hearts, make us more and more like you, more like the one who who perfectly displayed your character in this world. It's so hard for us. There are so many people around us that make it difficult 
for us to to be the kind of people we want to be. We thank you for your supernatural power that makes that possible. Will you, by your, your love and by your grace and by your power, continue to change us? That's what we want. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name.